Could I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, book of Revelation, we're continuing in our series to the, the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation and we, we come today to the second last of the seven letters that the Lord Jesus Christ wrote to these seven churches. Today we come to consider the church in Philadelphia. So let's read together God's word, Revelation chapter 3 from verse 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just so far in God's word this morning, and Stuart has already prayed uh, that God would be pleased to add his blessing to it this morning. So let me start with a question again this morning. Um, how many times in your life have you spoken about an open door when it comes to God's guidance in your life? Perhaps you were wondering about whether to apply for a new career or start a new business venture, or perhaps you're considering to move to another city, uh, or perhaps you're wondering about who you should marry or what you should go and study at university, and then regarding those various personal decisions, you say something like, I'm just waiting for the Lord to open a door for me. Or perhaps you've said these words, the Lord has just opened the door for me to get this new job or expand my business or semigrate to Cape Town. We come this morning to consider a church who was given an open door, an open door which Jesus says that no one is able to shut. Wouldn't it be great to know such clear guidance in, in our lives where Jesus comes as he does in verse 8 and he says, Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I, I wish God's guidance was that clear in my life. But the question is, does the Bible promise us that God will guide us like the church in Philadelphia? Does the Bible teach that God will open doors for us with regards to all the various decisions which we have to take in life. Well, let's turn to our Bibles this morning and see what God's Word says about these open doors before we move on into Revelation chapter 3. 
Now, if you do a study on, on this idea of God opening doors in the New Testament, you will find that there are about nine references to, to God or to Jesus opening doors. And every single one of them has got absolutely nothing to do with personal guidance and everything to do with personal salvation and with the spreading of the gospel. Let me just, if you want to take notes, just jot down these references. Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 to 13, the parable of the ten bridesmaids speaks about God shutting the door of salvation. Luke chapter 13, verse 24 and 25, Jesus urges us to enter the narrow door of salvation because when it is shut, no one who is left on the outside will be let through. John chapter 10, verse 1 to 9, Jesus himself proclaims himself to be the door to eternal life. Acts chapter 14, verse 7, uh, sorry, verse 27, Paul speaks about an open door of faith which was granted to the Gentiles to believe in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 18, verse 5 to 11 is a wonderful account of a literal open door which God gave to Paul to minister the gospel. Uh, Paul had tried repeatedly to minister of Christ in the synagogues in, in Corinth, and, and they opposed him and they reviled him. And so eventually he shook his garments off and said, your blood be on your own heads. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he literally walked next door to the home of Titus Justus, and he continued to preach the gospel from there. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, Paul says that a wide open door for gospel ministry has opened up for him in Ephesus. 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul again speaks of an open door to preach the gospel in Troas. Colossians 4 verse 3, Paul urges the church to pray for a door to be opened to preach the word of God and to declare the mysteries of Christ. And then we arrive in Revelation chapter 3 verse 7 and 8 where Jesus himself declares him to be the one who has the key of David. A key which it implies or he implies opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And so before we come to look at verse 8 to see what exactly this open door is that Jesus presents to the church in Philadelphia, we need to ask what verse 7 means. Uh, what does verse 7 mean? And, and what we need to understand is when Jesus says, he has the key of David. What is the significance of that? And, and so in the light of, of all of these references around open doors, I want to propose that the title of Jesus in verse 7 means that Jesus has the keys or he holds the keys to salvation. Let's read verse 7 again. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now, verse 7, if you're making notes in your, in your book or in your Bible, verse 7 is almost a verbatim quote from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And uh, when we see an Old Testament uh, quotation or allusion to a passage, we need to go and understand what that verse meant in its original context. And in Isaiah 22, God says that he is going to remove the unfaithful Shebna, 
as the royal palace administrator, and he's going to give his responsibility to um, Eliakim, and he says this in Isaiah 22, verse 20. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, speaking to Shebna, and bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open." So the context of Isaiah 22 is, is crucial to understanding how this key of David theme is then expanded on in the New Testament. For in Isaiah 22, we see that Shebna was unfaithful, and so God appoints Eliakim to become the gatekeeper, as it were, into the very palace of King David. He would be the one who would determine with that key who would have access into the very presence of the king. Now let's look at Revelation chapter 1. If you're still in Revelation 3, just turn back to Revelation 1, where we see Jesus picking up on this idea, Revelation 1, 17, of Jesus holding keys, speaking very clearly about his authority over life and death, over heaven and hell. Revelation 1 verse 17, Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So as we come then to chapter 3 verse 7, we consider this key of David, we see that the scriptures lead us to clearly understand that Jesus Christ alone is the one who holds the keys to the kingdom of God. So Revelation 3 is not referring anymore to a physical key that provides access for Jews into the palace of King David, but is referring to the spiritual key which Jesus holds, which provides access for all people, Jews and Gentiles together, to gain access into the presence of the King of Kings, to gain access to King David's greatest son, namely Jesus Christ himself. In other words, Jesus holds the keys to salvation and eternity in heaven, and he also, chapter 1 says, holds the keys to death and eternity in hell. Now this incredible power, this incredible authority which Jesus has over all people is actually terrifying to consider, were it not for the fact that verse 7 reminds us that Jesus is also the Holy One, the true one. He is the perfectly good, righteous, and true God, and all he does as King David's greatest son is done in holiness and truth. And so that's the first thing that we learn from this letter to the church in Philadelphia is that Jesus holds the keys to salvation. And this is crucial again as we've seen in all the previous letters so far because in each letter the title by which Jesus introduces himself to the church is then dire directly related to the message that he's about to speak to the church. And so this title of Jesus as the one who holds the key of David reminds us that he is the one who is the giver of salvation. He is the source of salvation. So what then uh, does, does this mean in terms of what he has to say to the church in Philadelphia? 
And so in the second place, I want us to see that Jesus creates opportunities for service in verse eight and nine. Jesus comes to this church in Philadelphia and he says to them that he has work for them to do. It's an important work. It's a work which no one will be able to stop. It's a, it's a work which only he can give to them because he is the one who holds the keys to salvation. Look at verse eight. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now there are a few important connections that we need to make here to understand what it is that Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia so that we can rightly understand and apply it to ourselves here at Honey Ridge this morning. And firstly, I want you to see that what Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia is a literal fulfillment of what Jesus promised to Peter in Matthew 16. Listen to the same terminology, Matthew 16, verse 18. This was just after Peter had confessed that, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And here we see in Revelation 3 verse 8 and 9 how it brings together this theme of, of the keys to the kingdom of heaven and this open door which Jesus says he has provided to the church in Philadelphia that, that no one can shut. Jesus is saying, I, Jesus, hold the keys to salvation I hold the keys to eternal life and I'm giving you as the church in Philadelphia an open door for gospel ministry that no one will be able to shut. I think this verse is also a practical fulfillment of what Jesus said to his disciples just prior to ascending into heaven. The Great Commission, Matthew 28 verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's another way of saying, I hold the keys of David. I hold the keys of salvation. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go therefore and proclaim the gospel to all nations. Again, this is what Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that the gospel of salvation is God's message of reconciliation and that has been entrusted to us as the church to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ to present this message of reconciliation to the world. And so God has promised to build his church. We love that verse. Nothing in all the world will be able to stand against the purposes, the gospel purposes of Jesus Christ in this world. And so what a great encouragement that should be to us as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church in 2021, facing all the uncertainties that we face in our world and, and in our culture today. I think sometimes we can become very discouraged in the ministry. I know I do at times when we consider how small we are, how weak we are, what little resources we have available, how big the mission field is right here at Honey Ridge on our doorstep across our city, let alone across the world, to think that this work which Jesus has entrusted to his disciples, it's just too big for us. But look at Jesus' wonderful words in verse eight, the second half of verse eight. I know you have but little power 
and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so here we see the the success of Jesus' plan to build his church is not dependent on our strength, he's not dependent on our resources. He knows us, he he writes here to a small church, humanly speaking, it's a weak church in Philadelphia, and he says, don't worry, I know that you are weak, I know that you have but little power, and yet, he says, you are strong, you are strong in the Lord and in his might, why? Because you have kept my word and remained faithful to my name. You've remained faithful to me. You've you've kept your trust in me and in my word. See, God does not look to the powerful in this world to accomplish his purposes. That is often the problem with the church. The church looks to the powerful in the world and says, if only they would join our church, then we would get things done. No, says Jesus. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, specifically chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Are you worried about your weakness as a Christian? your little power, your seemingly limited gifts and and resources, that you belong to a church which is filled with lots of other weak and feeble Christians? Well, says Paul, you are exactly the people God chose to use. God delights to use. Verse 8 is telling us that Jesus doesn't prefer the strong. He doesn't prefer the mighty or the wise or the noble or the rich or the powerful or the influential. He delights to use the weak who are faithful. He uses those who keep his word and declare his name. And I felt a a weight lift off my shoulders this week as I realized afresh that I too easily carry a load of of ministry responsibility which is not actually mine to carry. And perhaps some of you today in the various ministries that God has given to you in the context of this church or, or elsewhere, you need to lay this burden at the feet of Jesus. It is not our responsibility to build the church. It is not our responsibility to grow the church and to save sinners. That is God's work. It's it's his prerogative. We are called to be faithful. Faithful to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the opportunities for service, the open doors which Jesus Christ has given to us here at Honeyridge. And so this is, I think, a very timeous word to us as a church today, especially as we consider the many opportunities for ministry which God has given to us as a local church. You may know, I mentioned it this morning, the vision that we shared as elders of growing to plant. Should we be planting churches in and around Johannesburg? Maybe. But if so, 
then we should be earnestly praying for God to open that door of ministry to us, gospel ministry. And until then, what are we to be doing with the open door of gospel ministry that he has given to us already right now? In Cosmos City, in Zanspreit, through Pastor Elias and through Kingsway and Tandanani, through our soup kitchen outreach, through the car guard packs, through the care fund that we heard about this morning, through grief share and, and divorce care. Stuart prayed this morning for, for our children and our children's ministry. If we think particularly about the children in our area, We've got a school on our property with 280 children here every day. We have Friday night youth groups for all ages. We have Bible land on a Sunday. We have holiday clubs once a year. We have Sunday services that we're trying to make inclusive to families with children. As we think about all of these interactions that we can have with children in the week, are we really taking Jesus seriously? One thing is abundantly clear to me that Jesus has set before us as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church an open door for gospel ministry. And it is an open door which no one can shut because Jesus opened it. And the Lord knows. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we have but little power. But look at what he's calling for. Look at what he's commending. Faithfulness. Faithfulness to his word faithfulness to the proclamation of his name to the many lost children in our immediate community. As much as I've focused on the children, we can extend this into every other sphere of ministry in our community. Please notice, look in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, God does not present this open door to the pastor. He doesn't present it to the youth pastor. He doesn't present it to the children's director or to a few select individuals who have a heart for evangelism. What does it mean to have a heart for evangelism? If you have a heart for Jesus, you have a heart for evangelism. No, he presents the gospel opportunity to the church. He has given the keys of the kingdom of heaven to the church. That means all of us collectively as Honey Ridge Baptist Church, Jesus is speaking to you this morning. And so let me ask you plainly, what role are you playing in the open door of gospel opportunity which Jesus has presented to this local church? Now before we move on to our last point, I just want to show you something very important and very encouraging in verse 9. Because Jesus wants his people to take great courage to persevere in this gospel ministry despite their inherent weakness and despite the fact that they have been and will continue to face great opposition. Look at what he says in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now what on earth is that all about? This is an incredible verse because it says a, a whole lot about who we are in Christ and what Christ intends to accomplish through his people. Verse 9 
declares us as the church of Jesus Christ to be the true Israel of God. And any ethnic Jews, let me just explain this clearly, any ethnic Jew who rejects Jesus as Lord and Savior, he declares them to actually be the synagogue of Satan. Now we've seen already a few times in the previous churches that, that the Jews were a source of, of much persecution and opposition to the early Christian church. Jesus has already called the Jews the synagogue, the synagogue of Satan back in chapter two, verse nine. But both in chapter two, verse nine, and three, verse nine, Jesus is making it absolutely clear that an ethnic Jew, a, a physical blood descendant of Abraham, an Israelite by birth, if they do not believe in Jesus Christ, they're actually not a Jew at all. They are liars who are not members of God's people, but actually are members of the synagogue of Satan. This is actually what Paul says in Galatians chapter three, verse seven, that it is not Israelites by birth who are the children of Abraham, but those who have faith in Jesus who belong to the family of God and are the true children of Abraham. And so to drive this point home, Jesus does something quite incredible in verse nine. He again takes three quotations from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 45, verse 14, Isaiah 49, verse 23, and Isaiah 60, verse 14. Those verses, if you go and look them up, you will see they speak of the Gentile world at the time, the, the unbelieving world coming to bow down at the feet of Israel. And what Jesus does is he takes those quotations that were given originally to Israel saying the unbelieving world will come and bow down before Israel and he now applies those quotations to the church. And he says that unbelieving Jews will come and bow before the church and will ultimately recognize that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, Jesus is taking specific prophecies given to Israel in the Old Testament and he is directly applying them to the church, showing then that the original promises were not given to ethnic Israel apart from faith in Jesus Christ, but were given to the true spiritual Israel. There were believers in Israel in that day who believed in the Messiah that was to come and he takes that spiritual Israel concept and he applies it to both believing Jews and believing Gentiles who now trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And he shows us that there's actually gonna only ever be one of two camps. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. And ultimately every person who rejects Christ, whether they have a Jewish origin or are Gentiles, they will come to see one day that Jesus is Lord that he loves his church, the bride of Christ, that is made up from every nation on this world to be his treasured possession. So I hope this excites you. I hope this inspires you. We have Christians today getting so excited about what is happening in Israel politically and militarily and geographically. Jesus is saying, I want you to get excited about the church. The church is the bride of Christ and the Jews one day will travel from Israel. Those who do not believe in Jesus and they will come and they will bow at your feet and they will recognize that Jesus loved the church. What an 
encouragement for us to get busy then with the work of the gospel, to get busy with the, the ministry that Jesus has entrusted to us. No matter how weak we feel, no matter how much opposition there is, Jesus is the one who holds the keys to the kingdom. And he's opened a door for Honey Ridge Baptist Church, which no one can shut. So I hope this does greatly encourage you today to persevere in whatever ministry God has given to us as a church, given you in your role here in the church, and then perhaps just a challenge to those of you this morning who are not involved in any of the various ministries and outreach opportunities in this local church. Can I encourage you to, to be part of what King Jesus is doing here at Honey Ridge? Get involved in this open door which Jesus has thrown wide open to us as a church in this place at this season for this time. I want you to see that there are no passengers in the church in Philadelphia. How do I know that? Well, this is one of those churches where there is no rebuke. There is only commendation to the church as a whole and encouragement to continue to faithfully believe in Jesus and to proclaim his word. And so as Jesus comes to us this morning, could he say the same of us at Honey Ridge, all of us, as his lampstand here in Rand Park Ridge? Well, Jesus holds the keys to salvation. Jesus creates the opportunities then for gospel service. And in the final place, I want us to see that Jesus promises to sustain his church in verses 10 to 13. The church, as I've mentioned, in, in Philadelphia, um, had, he had nothing negative to say. It parallels the church in Smyrna, church number two. Jesus only had positive commendation for their faith and their love and their knowledge. And I think just like the church in Smyrna, if you remember, the church in Smyrna had both its buckets full, the bucket of the head and the bucket of the, of the mind. Both buckets were full. They were a healthy church, but they were also a persecuted church. And so we see here too, the church in Philadelphia, it's a healthy church, it's bucket of the mind, it's bucket of the heart, are full, but as a result, it is also a church facing persecution. We know that they faced it from the Jews, we know that um, they were facing opposition from the Roman Empire, but we see in verse 8 that they did not bow to this pressure to deny the name of Christ, they stood firm on his word. And now verse 10 makes it more specific that they need to patiently endure what they were facing. For that is what Jesus called them to as his faithful witnesses in Philadelphia. But Jesus doesn't leave them without the resources and the encouragement necessary to patiently persevere. And so he comes in these closing verses to give them some wonderful promises of encouragement. And Jesus promises them four things. Let me list them for you, and then I'll read those verses. Jesus promises them, I will keep you, in verse 10. I will come for you, verse 11. I will dwell with you, verse 12a. And I will name you, verse 12b. Now let's just read those verses. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall 
Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus comes here and he encourages the church in Philadelphia with four wonderful promises. And because God is a God who never changes, he continues to encourage us with these same promises today. Firstly, Jesus promises, let's just get that point up. Um, here we go. Jesus promises, I will keep you. I will keep you. Verse 10. It's a wonderful encouragement to those who are facing suffering and persecution for the name of Christ. I will keep you. I'll keep you safe. Jesus says that the time is coming when the whole world is going to face tribulation to test those who live on the earth. And some commentators suggest that this could refer to that intense period of persecution uh, that was about to come on all the churches across the, the Roman Empire just after AD 70. It could refer to the ongoing persecution of Christians throughout the ages. Or it could refer to the final period of tribulation before Jesus returns. We cannot be sure but as often is the case with biblical prophecy, it's most likely referring to all three as multiple horizons of fulfillment. There was certainly intense persecution on them at their time. We've looked back throughout the ages, we continue to see persecution, and we know that there is still a great trial awaiting us before the Lord returns. So the details are actually not that important. The comfort of what Jesus says is, I will keep you. I will keep you. To help us understand what that means, what does it mean when Jesus says, I will keep you? Well, let's go back to his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, which he prayed for his disciples. Listen to what Jesus prays to the Father. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, he says, but now I'm coming to you. And I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What a wonderful promise to know that Jesus Christ keeps us, that God the Father keeps us from the evil one. He guards us, he protects us. And the encouragement we get here is that Jesus will not ever abandon his sheep. We saw this with Smyrna. Jesus encouraged them to persevere through their trials because he said, even if you die, guess what? I've conquered death and I'll give you the crown of life. And so here too, Jesus promises his church not to take them out of the trials, but to keep them through the trials. Secondly, we see that Jesus promises wonderfully, I will come for you in verse 11. Now just think of any situation in life where you are stranded. Perhaps you think of someone being tossed overboard uh, into the sea. Someone's fallen down the edge of a, a mountain and he's stranded on a, on a little ledge. Perhaps you can think of a soldier who's been captured as a prisoner of war. Or perhaps even worse than all of that, you can think of a little child who's been left behind at school. What is the most comforting thing that such a person can hear? It's to hear the words, 
I'll come for you. You have not been forgotten. Your plight is known and you will be delivered. That's what Jesus promises to the church here. Don't ever think that I've forgotten you. I will not only keep you in your struggles and in your trials, but I will come for you and I will come soon and I will rescue you. Verse 11, the promise I will come for you is like this life rope that is being thrown to a a church that was perhaps feeling like they were drowning in persecution and suffering. And Jesus says, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So Jesus is coming soon. And for those who put their faith in him, he promises that his coming will lead to everlasting life. And then thirdly, Jesus promises, uh, I will dwell with you. Verse 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And again, this is a a wonderful Old Testament promise that was given to Israel, which finds its fulfillment in the New Testament church. The temple of God in Jerusalem was the physical location for for all the worship of God. It was the, the center of all religious activity. It was the symbolic center of the presence of God amongst his people. And Jesus comes now to this church, this small, struggling, weak local church in Philadelphia, mostly made up of converted Gentiles and a few converted Jews, and he says to this little church, you, Philadelphia, will become pillars in the temple of my God, and you will never depart from it. If you know anything about building, a pillar is a permanent part of a building. It's absolutely integral to its structure. And so what Jesus says here is is quite profound. The church of Jesus Christ will become the permanent dwelling place for God by his spirit for all eternity. This dwelling of God within the spiritual temple of the church, this has already begun here on earth. When you and I come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, Peter says, 1 Peter 2 verse 4, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, as you come to Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, that's the temple concept, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, you see what Peter does? He, he takes the very special, unique language of the Old Testament of Israel in the context of the temple worship, and he applies it to the church of Jesus Christ. The physical temple in Jerusalem with, with all its glory, Peter says, was nothing more than a shadow. And that, I think, is why God orchestrated its final destruction in AD 7 so that people would no longer look to the shadow when the reality, which is the church of Christ, has come. We are the reality. We are the dwelling place for God by His Spirit. And Jesus promises that this will continue into all eternity. So this trajectory then is from shadow to partial reality with the church is consummated finally in Revelation 21 where John tells us about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And he says this eternal city of God will descend from heaven and guess what? In that day there will be no temple. Why? There will be no physical structure 
because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb will dwell in the presence of his people. So we see that he will dwell with us. What an encouragement, and that starts now. And then finally, Jesus promises us a new name. He says in verse 12, Be and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. We're going to get three new names. Um, and this also is a direct fulfillment of three more prophecies from the book of Isaiah to Israel, which now Jesus says is fulfilled in the church. Isaiah 56 verse 5 God says, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Isaiah 62 verse 2, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Isaiah 65 verse 15, his servants will be called by a new name. These are wonderful, lofty promises given originally to Israel. And here Jesus comes to this weak, struggling church and says, all of those promises are fulfilled in you, in my church. What do you think would happen if, if you went to parents of a brand new baby? We've got a few parents of brand new babies in the church. And after congratulating them on their beautiful new baby, you said, can I give him his name? Don't ever try that. Okay, it won't end well. Of course not. Because naming a baby is a unique and special privilege of the parents. It's their right by, by virtue of the baby being their offspring. It's a sign of ownership and belonging to their family. And so Jesus comes to this weak church in Philadelphia and he comes to us at Honeyridge and he says, I will name you. I will call you by the name of my God. That speaks of ownership. We belong to God. Secondly, he says, I will call you by the name of the new Jerusalem. That speaks of citizenship. We are given a new heavenly citizenship. And thirdly, he says, I will call you by my new name. And that speaks to us of identity. Could there be any greater privilege, any greater security, any greater joy in this world than to be named by Jesus with these three special covenant names of the people of God? So we who have come to Christ for salvation, we belong to Jesus. He gives us a new identity. He gives us a name better than sons and daughters. How can that be? There's no greater privilege than that of a son or daughter, but we get something better than that. An everlasting name that will never be cut off because we are forever secure in his love. So let me close with what Peter says then to us who are the true Israel of God today, to the church of Jesus Christ at Honeyridge, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, but you are a chosen race. Did you hear that? Black, white, colored, Indian we as Honey Ridge, we as Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, ownership, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
Once we were not a people, now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. So may God help us as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church to go out from here. As you walk out there, you're walking through an open door, a physical one, but you are walking through a spiritual open door, which Jesus says no one will be able to shut. May we go and march out through that open door of gospel ministry as we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again this morning for just the wonder of who you are, the wonder of the God that we serve as we look at what you came and said to this little struggling church in Philadelphia to see the God of, of all creation, the God of the universe, taking such a detailed interest in the minute technicalities of what was going on in a, in a small little church in your kingdom 2,000 years ago. And so what an encouragement that is to us as Honey Ridge today to know that you have, again, through your living and abiding word, proclaimed truthfully from the text with the enabling of your Holy Spirit, you've applied that word to us as the Honey Ridge Baptist Church today. You know us intimately. You know the open door that you have presented to us. You know the, the doors that we are starting to push on for the future. Lord, make us a church that is humble and submissive to your leading and guiding for whatever you may lead us to in the future. May it be clear to us the doors that you have opened to us for gospel ministry, and may we be faithful, faithful proclaimers of your word and faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we entrust to you the work of building your church and extending your kingdom. For that is your responsibility. Help us to be faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.